Hello? Hello? Are you here? Oh, please, won't you please be here? We need it and love it when you're here listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. So your hosts, Paul Leslie, had the good fortune to see Barry Manilow and his band of talented musicians performing in Savannah, Georgia, just this past January 15th. That's a big reason why we're playing this interview from the archives with the incomparable Adrian Anderson. Adrian Anderson's a very talented lyricist who was introduced to us by lyricist Marty Panzer. Adrian's most known for the song she co-wrote with composer Barry Manilow. You know, some of the most beloved songs recorded and performed by Barry Manilow feature the lyrics of Adrian Anderson including Daybreak, Could It Be Magic, and many more. Songs Adrian Anderson wrote have been recorded by many great artists, including Melissa Manchester, Bette Midler, Donna Summer, and Isaac Hayes. Interesting tidbit, the late great Frank Sinatra sang a televised performance of the song See the Show Again on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Fans of Dionne Warwick may be familiar with Anderson's work from the song Deja Vu, which she co-wrote with Isaac Hayes. With Peter Allen, Adrian Anderson co-wrote I Go to Rio, which became a signature song for Allen. The song was later covered by the band Pablo Cruz, as well as Peggy Lee. We've been telling the human story for 19 years and counting. If you believe in what we do, won't you please become a patron of the spoken word? Merely visit thepaulleslie.com slash support. And we thank you for listening and supporting. I'm excited to hear this interview with Adrian Anderson. She truly is a special one. Let's listen together. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our great pleasure to welcome our special guest, Adrian Anderson. Thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. This first question, really, uh, I asked Gene Wilder this yesterday, and he said, that's a hard question, but it's a simple question. So my first question, who is Adrian Anderson? Wow. Well, combination of things, of course, and evolving. I am uh, much more of a family person now than I was when I started my career. I've got a daughter who is 25 years old and has a huge uh, future of her own. Then a husband I'm very devoted to that I've been married to for almost 30 years. As far as my definition of myself as a careerist, that's never really gone away. I love the creative process. I've always loved the creative process. And while my um, projects vary, I hope to be involved one way or another in something having to do with music for the rest of my life. So speaking of life, let's go back to the beginning. What was life like growing up and where are you from? I grew up in Manhattan, and it was fantastic. I was very, very lucky. Child of privilege. I got 
exposed to the golden age of Broadway uh, when I was just uh, old enough to have any idea of what I was watching. And I mean the golden age. I mean South Pacific Carousel, Guys and Dolls, The King and I, etc. All the original stage productions. When I was in the eighth grade, West Side Story opened, changed my life, went to see it four times, studied theater, studied dance, studied voice, and was just very, very blessed to be in the cultural center of the Western world. And it, it had a life-altering effect on me, and I, I just loved growing up there. Can you remember perhaps specific records or specific songs you heard around the house or on the radio? When I was the youngest, it was the Broadway stuff that had the, the most immediate impact on me because it was the height of Rodgers and Hammerstein, and I was just, as I say, barely old enough to understand how great that stuff was, also seeing it all on stage in real time had a tremendous impact on me that I think lasted me all the way through. I mean, to this day, it's scary how I can recall all those lyrics. I also had a, uh, a father who was very sophisticated musically who exposed me to jazz very early in life so that I was very aware of Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughan and Lena Horne and Big Spiderbick and Art Tatum and people like that so that I was not your typical kid growing up where, you know, when I was in college and everyone was listening to those early Beatles records, I was a Charlie Mingus fan, a Miles Davis fan, a Horace Silver fan. I, I owe a lot of that early exposure and sophistication to my father. Did you always write? No, no, not at all. Originally, I I wanted to be on the stage. I did summer stock. I I had some potential. I went to Carnegie Mellon, which is a very uh, renowned theater department, and then I I studied in New York and was quite serious about all that. But then it was the '60s, you know, and theater got really boring, and the real theatrics and, and entertainment had switched over to music, and I had great taste. I didn't have a great voice, but I had great taste, so I put together a little act, and that's actually how I met Barry. It's a cute story. I, I actually hired him as my accompanist to help me put an act together for $10 an hour, and that's how we met. What was your first impression of Barry Manilow when you met him? Well, he was just the sweetest, geekiest guy that that I had ever met, you know, with a great, great ability to play piano and a company. Everybody used him. He and I found each other to be kindred spirits almost immediately because he had this penchant towards jazz, and so did I. And he thought I was cat's meow in terms of, if for some reason, he loved my voice, and I loved his playing, and we just hit it off from the first time that we um, that we did a song together. It was just instantaneous. So uh, what we did was we we spent about eight or nine months putting together this act that was so unique uh, that uh, the people who were managing me when we presented the act to them 
said they couldn't book me because nobody would understand or recognize any of the songs that I was attempting to sing. So they fired Barry and put me with somebody else. But Barry and I continued on, and he was just starting to write a little bit, and he said, well, since I'm, since I'm trying to write songs, why don't we write songs together? I said, sure, okay. So, so we started writing songs together, and it was the tail end of the Brill era. I mean, really the tail end of the Brill era. But we would write a batch of songs, and I wrote the lyrics because I wasn't going to play like him. I couldn't play like him. But we did a lot of duets, too, two-part harmonies, and just thought it was great, great. And we would just go from floor to floor and knock on publishers' doors, and, <laughs> and Barry would play, and I would sing, and we would play songs for $100. And that's how it got started. And eventually... I lost more interest in the performing end of it and gained more interest in the writing of it, and that was pretty much because of what he and I were doing together. Can you remember the first song that you and Barry Manilow wrote that you'd say, this one's a keeper? Our, lovely, our, love, our love Will Still Be There was the name of the song. And it was good. We wrote a lot of good stuff. I mean, I don't think anybody actually published that one, but I think that was the first song. You know, he was always a great keyboard player, and he always had, even from back in in those days, the same kind of charm and personality that he's got now. Of course, his ambition in those days was to be the next Nelson Riddle. He was he wanted to be an arranger. He he never ever really thought of himself as vocalist, but the fact is that he he had the same voice then that he has now. Who knew? I remember hearing him one time in concert. He was at Phillips Arena in Atlanta, and he was telling a little story on stage, and he started off, and he said, I've never been much of a singer, and I thought, yeah, right. But I, but I've heard that same story from a couple people that you know he they never thought of him really as a singer. It was more like when Bette Midler said to him, "But Barry, you don't sing." Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, the thing about about Barry, which I guess you could say similar about, was that and one of the reasons that I stopped pursuing that was because the key, I think, to have being a success as a vocalist is getting that personality across. He was always, always able to do that, and that's why I don't think he thought of himself seriously as a, as a singer because he didn't necessarily have the, uh, the technique or the pipes, but what he did have right from the beginning was uh, his personality, which was his own, that came through and had a charm, uh, and a warmth and a humor that never really changed, you know, and a tremendous musicality. What was the first song that he recorded of yours that was like a co-write? That he recorded of ours? Yeah. Well, there's actually an interesting story to this one because <laughs> what happened was I was in New York. Uh, I was moving to the West Coast, and I was moving to the West Coast because I... I was marrying somebody who wanted to move to the West Coast, and I sort of figured, oh, well, 
let's give it a go. But I was very apprehensive about breaking up the relationship with Barry and being on my own because I thought, well, if I don't have him writing and playing, what am I going to do? I'm just going to be on my own. So I determined to figure out how to do it by myself. I rented this rehearsal space on 57th Street for whatever, $12 an hour. And this was in the midst of the, you know, the Paul McCartney era. I came up with this little tune called Amy that, for what it was, was actually quite good and quite charming. My soon-to-be husband in those days was a big shot music publisher at CBS, and he had a production company, and everyone agreed that this thing should be recorded. So, uh, a full production. So we went into the studio to record this song, and of course Barry was around. At the last minute, they just said, well, we need a scratch vocal. Barry, would you mind? So he went in and he did the vocal on it, and that record, Amy, was what landed him his first record deal at Bell Records. So it was ironic because he didn't even write that song. I wrote that song. Interesting. Yeah, a little bit of trivia there. You've worked with so many people. I don't know if this is true, but I read something about you working with Frank Sinatra. Oh, I never worked with Frank Sinatra. But Barry and I have a song called Why Don't You See the Show Again that he actually performed on The Tonight Show when Johnny Carson was the host, and nobody knew he was going to do it, and... I was on the West Coast, and Barry was in New York, and he called me screaming hysterical and said, uh, you're not going to believe this. It was a three-hour delay, so I had to wait three hours to see it. But sure enough, he sang he sang the song, and he sang it really, really well. And it was definitely a highlight of my career, without a doubt. Incredible. Yeah. Well, tell us about the song, Could It Be Magic?, that Barry Manilow recorded. Mm-hmm. Well, I was uh, already on the West Coast when he came up with the idea based on the Chopin prelude, and he had come up with the chorus and was terribly excited, played what he had over the phone to me, and I became terribly excited because it was obvious that there was something really special that was starting to happen. I think I was staying at a hotel down in L.A., when I wrote the lyric to the verses, I still have the copy on Hotel Stationery of what I wrote. And it was just one of those things where I kind of nailed it right from the get-go. And needless to say, it was time well spent. Is it possible to pick a favorite song of yours? You mean with Barry? Just in general, any song. Oh, gee. No, not really. I mean, I have maybe my half-dozen favorites. I've just written so many songs most of which have not, you know, been top ten hits. You know, that's the way it goes sometimes, is that some of your favorites can tend to be more obscure, but certainly Could It Be Magic is is right up there. And, and with Barry, we had a great time on the 2 a.m. Paradise Cafe project, which was a highlight for all of us. A great experience. You know, Marty and I were present during the recording of that record and I don't know if you've heard the story but that was a one take I don't know you know the musicians who were playing on that record yeah fantastic Uh, album they were well rehearsed and Barry had written beautiful arrangements 
to link all of the songs. I, I, you've listened to it, I guess. So certainly, uh, it's all just continuous, and that's Barry's music. They just did the whole thing, you know, without any interruption. When they were over, finished, everybody kind of looked at, at each other and said, "Is this possible?" But it was, <laughs> you know, it's very unusual. What about Daybreak? What inspired the lyrics for that song? Well, it's kind of a funny story because when I wrote that lyric, I really wasn't thinking about Barry at all. I didn't think... I, I, I was thinking more in terms of a gospel R&B group. I didn't even show him the lyric. He was at my house, and it was just sitting on a, a pile. And he said, what's this? I said, that was just a lyric, you know, and... And he said, give me a couple of minutes with this. I swear, I remember, I went downstairs and made us lunch. And by the time I had finished making us lunch, he had come up with the music. And, well, you know, little could I have imagined that that little lyric was going to get the kind of mileage that it did. But again, it was one of the... A lot of lyrics that I wrote for Barry over the years were were custom customized for him. And that's a great luxury when you can write for an artist especially when you can write for an artist that you know as well as I know him. Because I could, you know, kind of get under his skin and, and, and really, really personalize. Whereas if you're just writing a lyric to, to uh, music that's going out there to find, try to find an artist, it's very different. But with Daybreak, I certainly, I certainly didn't have him in mind for that at all. It's a fantastic song. I, I don't think anybody could ever listen to that song, the words and the music, and be in a bad mood. <laughs> I, I, I can't imagine that. <laughs> well, you know, it it's great. You know, it, it's, it's given us both a great deal of pleasure. You know, I try to make my lyrics as personal as I can in terms of my own point of view. Uh, I am by nature and optimistic. So I guess that definitely came across in that lyric. What is it like to have someone like Dionne Warwick record one of your songs? That song, oh. Deja Vu. It has to be incredible. She's such a legend. I, we were pinching her. You know, Barry produced that record. And that was surreal because I was a, we both were huge Dionne Warwick fans. And, you know, that whole Backrack David catalog that's just, up there with the best of the, you know, uh, of what was written in pop music in the mid-20th century, and such a unique and perfect talent. I remember going into the studio while she was recording Deja Vu. Her nonchalance was just astonishing. You know, she was painting her nails while she was recording and puffing on cigarettes, and, and then she would, you know, just sing and... And she was just perfect. And uh, I remember Barry and I looking at each other in the control room and saying, is this actually happening? We were both just <laughs> like, you know, stunned. And fans, you know, like we were of a, you know, younger generation who had grown up listening to all of uh, the body of her work and were just, you know, in such awe. What about your work with Peter Allen? Uh-huh. Tell, tell us about how that came to be. Well, Peter had a, a publisher in L.A. that I had a a nice relationship with, and 
until we were actually put together. We knew each other very casually, just from knowing people in common. And so it wasn't that we had never met, but we weren't friends. We just kind of knew each other. And so uh, it was set up for us to, to, to write together. I had come up with some ideas. You know, I wanted to care something. See, I don't remember exactly when with some idea that was rejected immediately. And the next thing I know, he's saying, well, why don't we write, why don't we write this? And he started to launch into this, this music for Rio. And the story as it goes is that we, we were just in an office, the publishers, everyone had gone to lunch. It was just him and me and the piano. And we wrote the entire song in one hour. Would not a word ever changed, not a note ever changed. And um, when everybody returned from lunch, we were terribly excited. And we sat everybody down and said, well, listen to this. Peter played, and I don't know if we both sang or just Peter sang, but we just kind of knew that we had nailed it. I mean, I don't think anybody knew that that copyright was going to end up having the legs that it's had, which is just been astonishing, you know, on a worldwide level. It's just been an amazingly successful copyright. But you can, it's just a crazy business because, you know, you can write great stuff that never sees the light of day, or you can write great stuff that takes you an hour. It was like Daybreak took me 20 minutes to write. Then you feel almost guilty, like, this isn't right, you know, how can I be making, you know, this kind of money on something that took 20 minutes to write. But just, I guess, you know, a lot of it is just circumstantial, and I was very lucky. I was very, very lucky. If you look at, I don't know what it is, the percentage of people, even in those days, that earned a living writing lyrics, I'm sure it was minuscule then, and it's probably non-existent now. You also have worked with someone who's an upcoming guest of ours, Melissa Manchester. What was your impression of her? I adored her, and we wrote a lot together. And in those days, in those days, it was it was kind of different. There were no restrictions. Her producer at the time just loved everything that we did, and there was never anything held back in terms of we would just write stuff, and it would go, it would just go right into the recording studio, but Melissa and I were very, very close, and we were very, very young. She was younger than I was and still is, but there was a creativity and a free-spiritedness to our work that was just just delicious. We, we didn't feel any kind of commercial restriction, and I think that there was a, an innocence in terms of being created in a way that once you become more seasoned, you tend not to be quite as because you tend to play it more safe and be a little bit more structured. But we had wonderful, wonderful time sharing the creative process together. Kind of working our way to the present. Not too long ago, you worked on City Kid, the musical. And you're working on something now. I was hoping you could tell us about this, these projects you've been working on lately. Well, you know, instead of taking a day or a week or a month, these projects take years. City Kid, 
was kind of my brainchild, and I recruited two great, great guys to collaborate with me, Peter Bonetta and Rick Chudikoff, who were R&B producers and quite successful. And I came up with this concept to turn what I thought was initially going to be a concept album into, into a stage production. I sort of undertook this myself in terms of developing the story and urging them along because they thought I was crazy, and uh, it wasn't their thing at all. They had never thought in terms of wanting to do theater. I actually found a great group outside of Seattle who fell in love with wanting to um, to help develop the project, and and so they did, and we had a workshop and a full stage production up there. Some of the best experiences of my life. You can't compare being involved with a group of theater kids with making a record because theater is such a a community experience, a collaborative experience. So, you know, whereas if you're if you're writing a song for a record, you write it with somebody or alone. And then you're in a recording studio, and, you know, it's, it's pretty quiet. There's not that many people there. Whereas here, it was all about people. And so my endeavor was then to try and contemporize Broadway, which has proven to be a very, very difficult thing to do. Even if you saw the Tonys this year, you could see that some of the stuff that, that was written a year ago sounds like it could have been written 40 years ago. So it's very, very tough. Broadway is very, very tough. We ended up finally, after having a substantial run up in Seattle, uh, coming down to L.A. and having an eight-week run down here, which actually proved quite successful. However, we were in a uh, 99-seat equity waiver with a cast of 17 and six band members, all union. So the costs were unrealistic, and we were forced to shut down before before we found what we needed to move on. So as of now, City Kid is in, is in uh, limbo. It's been very hard for me. But in the meantime, I'm, I'm pursuing this, this pawnbroker project, which is really, really a horse of a different color and uh, isn't pop at all. It's very serious. It's, I'm collaborating with a fellow by the name of Eduardo Del Barrio, who's a very serious composer. Uh, I've adapted the book, which, you know, I think I've gotten pretty good at. It's a wonderful story. There was a film that was made of the novel in the mid-60s that Sid Lummett directed that starred Rod Steiger, who won an Oscar. Quincy Jones did a superb score. It was a very much heralded property in its day. And uh, there's still a generation or two that certainly know the pawnbroker. You're probably just too young. Uh, But these are very, very long-range projects, you know. So that kind of suits me at this stage of my life. What is the best thing about being Adrian Anderson? The best thing about being Adrian Anderson? Yes, ma'am. Oh, well, I guess the best thing about being Adrian Anderson is that I'm a person 
who's always been pretty comfortable in her own skin. I um, I believe what I believe, and I feel what I feel, and I I don't tend to hide those feelings. I've been a, a very good mother and a very good wife and a very good friend. People love me. I love them. But there's just not too much of a gap between my inner life and my outer life. And I think that's probably the best part of, of being me. And the fact that I've, I've been able to live out a lot of my fantasies. I've, I've been very, very, very lucky to have had the opportunity to do that. I have two final questions. One is kind of lighthearted, and then the other is a little more serious. The lighthearted one first. Your all-time favorite meal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a good steak and a piece of chocolate cake. Oh yeah. How do you how do you have the steak? Medium rare. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> and now for the last question. Okay. This broadcast can be heard by people all over the world, and we hear from people all over not only America, but in other countries as well. My last question, what would you like to say to all the people who are listening in? Oh, I would say find your passion and live it and be good to each other along the way. Thank you so much for this interview. It's been a great pleasure. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it also, and I look forward to you hearing the final production. Excellent. All right. Well, you have a wonderful day. You too, Paul. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, The Entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour. <laughs>